zombies welcome i'm richard kraus on the other end of the internet tubes we have chris abel hello 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 uh each week we come to you from our respective layers the esoteric houses the house of kraus here the uh, chris abel uh, abode and uh, we tell you about things that are interesting us uh this particular week it may change from week to week i tend to talk a lot about movies because uh certainly lately that's all i've been doing is with the Toronto International Film Festival kind of wrapping up. Uh, but uh, we talk about many, many different things. So if you're joining us for the first time, welcome. <laughs> welcome indeed. <laughs> welcome. And uh, this week, uh, I have um, some movie-related things I wanted to talk about. Uh, one is a hangover, a holdover, really not a hangover, although uh, one of the characters in this film has a great many hangovers during the film. That's awesome. Uh, I wanted to tell you about uh, The Master a little bit later on. Okay. Uh, and then I also wanted to talk about uh, movie lines. Some uh, There's been a new poll done about the world's best movie lines, and oh, I wanted cool. to talk about that a little all right. What, that's what have awesome. you brought along? Well, you know, um, speaking of hangovers, that's a great uh, sort of, you know, continuation on from our movie Pistols at Dawn contest yes. last week. Now, we had ended the actual episode with, with it being about the best TIFF discovery because that was the only thing right. I could think of at the time. But then afterwards, I realized that you and I had shown off barf bags. And wouldn't that be a much better competition, I thought? Who had the better Who's barf the bag? Coolest barf bag, yeah. Yeah. Well, and based on checking uh, the poll on HeyAllYouZombies.com, where you can always vote on our polls and give us any kind of feedback. Uh, and I, unfortunately, we didn't get any stories about vomit or, or barf <laughs> bags. I was looking I, I don't know that I'm, I don't know that I'm terribly upset by that. Okay. <laughs> but I, I'm, I'm happy to announce that actually you won with the best barf bag. Uh, for Mark of the Devil. And I have to admit, although I think mine had the prettier pictures, yours had the better lines on it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, mine is, and mine has some age to it as well. I mean, you've had yours for a number of years. Mine looks like it's about 40 years old or something like that. So but yours is in glass. I mean, you you, you know, that's that's diehard. That's passion. It's and hanging then, on the wall. It's mine's hanging, kind of hidden in a bookshelf somewhere, you know? Yeah. Like, no, I've got a barf bag uh, on display. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. <laughs> but the interior, that's why I'm a, a film critic and not an interior designer. I think there's a perfect uh, example of that right there. Now, you need to get some, like, fake vomit. And I think you no. just place it next to the, the actual frame and sort of claim that this is also from 1969 or 1970, I think the movie was. Listen, yeah. you might be onto something there. <laughs> <laughs> and then you got to get, like, you know, um, something to do with dogs and get some fake doggy doo-doo and put oh, that yeah. up next to it. You know, that would be a nice uh, Listen, maybe next to the big painting, which I'm not allowed to have in here, uh, the PMC, my preferred movie companion, is not allowing me to get what I want, which is the giant picture of the dogs playing cards. Oh, that I love awesome. that. I love that painting, and it would look great right here. I mean, fantastic right here, but it's not going to happen. What about that variation I sent you once on Facebook? It's it's a painting that someone did fantastic of okay. Predator and Alien right. uh, playing chess. Would that not I'm, be a little more sophisticated I, for I, your tests? Listen, I might have I might have a, a better chance of getting that in here, but only by about that much. Like, really. <laughs> Ah, uh, she's been good. I mean, the barf bag. 
you know, the barf bag is uh, an example. There's uh, like little Andy Warhols everywhere. There's a, like there's a, there's a lot of things in this house uh, that you know a lot of people wouldn't really want to have around. <laughs> the dog, the dog's playing cards. That's just that's an extreme example. And she had to draw the line somewhere. Not a blamer. Otherwise, there'd be no room to move in here. I would have uh, the place filled up with esoterica. Right. Well, um, lately I've been thinking a lot about dream homes the kind of yeah. things that if you did have complete freedom you could have right. your own home put whatever that you want in it but also just in terms of resources not mm. money but in that fantasy like when you're a little kid I, I know that uh myself and my friends used to sit around and dream about one day when we're older and mm -hmm. we finally have gotten rid of the family and the parents and we've got our own place all the kind of things that we would have from pinball right. machines to you know instead of having a refrigerator like tom hanks and big you'd have just a vending machine of a big coca-cola machine it's a good idea yeah stuff like that uh but i've been sort of going through an adult version of that lately uh partly because of this new technology that was just unveiled in new york last week called the low line uh, i'm going to pull up uh, an image here to show you exactly what i'm talking about uh, da, 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 there it is. All right, so this is pretty wild. This strikes me as being a fantasy. And what it is is a group oh. of architects have created an underground forest. Right. So in large cities, uh, New York, Hong Kong is also an excellent example. You have sections of the city where they were poorly planned from an early planning perspective. Right. There's not a lot of vegetation. Toronto, I'm happy to say, is actually pretty good in that department. I went for a helicopter tour of the city once and was amazed by just how many green parks you really have. Right. Right. But their idea was that you could, uh, by using basically large solar mirror collectors, and uh, let me see if I got a photo of it right here. So you would have uh, a set of these that would be embedded in the surface of the mm -hmm. ground, collecting sunlight. Right. And then that would pump it down to what you're seeing here, which is sort of the opposite version. That's actually in the ceiling of the oh, underground cool. cavern. Mm -hmm. And that would radiate sunlight outwards so that it would create sort of an artificial sun. And then from there, you could actually go underground, and I'll return to the first image. And then turn it into an old person living underground completely <laughs> with artificial sun. Well, this is the kind of thing you've seen in science fiction, yeah, you know, where yeah, there's underground yeah. plants. And often you've seen it as a form of terraforming on other plants. So I'm pretty excited about this. I think it's fantastic. I, of course, understand there has to be inherent problems and complexities to it. You can't mm -hmm. just set uh, sunlight in an underground cavern and right. then ship in a pile of plants and hope that everything's going to grow because <laughs> nature has its own sort of, you know, mentality of how it's going to, to handle situations. But it's very interesting. The space that they're showing here is very small, but their plan is to convince the Metro Tra Transit Authority in New York to give them uh, an old abandoned train terminal. In oh, New cool. York, going back way, I guess probably to the 1920s, there was an old terminal underground. It's huge. It's vast. In fact, if you are someone that you have played uh, any of the Batman Arkham City video games, right. you know the space I'm talking about. You go below <laughs> underground where all the homeless should be, and there is a long, huge abandoned terminal that's under there. Uh, in the Batman games, it's used by Ra's al Ghul's band, but here... They're trying right. to actually use it towards a park where people could go and uh, entertain themselves. What's remarkable is that this just opened this past weekend, and already someone spotted uh, one of the first prominent insects. That's a praying mantis that is oh, wow. uh, wow. way down there. And so obviously this has a really good, I think, uh, chance of actually winning, of, of huh. becoming a real project. I don't know if we would ever have something like that here in Toronto, but I'm kind of excited about that. 
Right. Well, that, that is very cool. Uh, it reminds me of a story that I heard about a very big A-list star, and I'm not going to say who it is, but I heard the story about you go to his home and uh, you knock on the door and someone comes and meets you at the front door and they say, oh, yes, uh, you know, he'll meet you in the kitchen. Just go down the hall, take a left at the lake, and then you'll see and then continue on down the hall and you'll find him. That's where the kitchen is. And I thought, well, that's pretty funny. Someone has a lake in their home. I don't know whether they've got all that other stuff. Yeah. But there's a, someone has a lake and some vegetation in their homes. Oh, I love and hearing. you've seen their movies. And, oh, really? Uh, yeah. I love hearing stories like that because uh, oftentimes, you know, when people do get a lot of money, they're just buying what is considered to be extravagant. And I've yeah. seen photos of some of their rich and famous houses. And, yeah, you know, they got all the big names or they've had customized furniture that's actually got Madagascar brown wood or bamboo. Yeah. But I like the dinosaur bones yeah. or something. Yeah. I like the more creative approaches. I mean, uh, Pixar, their offices are famous because they actually have a, a little secret passage. Right. It was just an anomaly in the architecture, and one animator found it and decided he's going to set up a little bar and people crawl underneath on their hands and legs. But I was reading today, um, weird that it just popped up when I was thinking about this, but Teller from Penn & Teller has a fantastic home. Well, he does. I read this article in Esquire magazine, right? That's Did you the one, just, yeah. And yeah, I mean, he's got uh, one of Houdini's crosses, the the famous uh, uh, thing that he was uh, tied to and he would escape from. He's got all kinds of cool stuff, including like a giant bronze bear that does a magic trick, which is so cool. Yeah. When you come into his house uh, and you encounter the bronze bear, no, actually, before you even find the bear, uh, Teller will hand you a pack of cards mm -hmm. and uh, ask you to, of course, pick a card. Yeah. And then as you're touring through his home, which includes uh, a hallway that is bent at a forced perspective. So well, yeah, looks, yeah. yeah, yeah. And you get to the garden where the bronze bear is, the bear suddenly speaks and says, oh, was your card a three of, and then stops and says, no, 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 it was a five of spades. I and know. it was exactly the card that you're holding. Well, and, and I love his line. He goes, that one even fools magicians, which yeah. is, uh, yeah, it's a fantastic article. I mean, there's an interesting guy. You know, I, I've, I've seen Penn and Teller perform a, a few times, and I've been a fan forever. And uh, Penn, of course, if you're not familiar with it, Penn's the big guy who does all the talking, Teller the smaller one, who tends to do most of the real magic that you see, or what we consider real magic, all the sleight of hand stuff. He tends to do most of that, but he doesn't say anything. And, um, you know, I, I love... Uh, that Penn was on Celebrity Apprentice. I love that he was an oddball on that show and totally didn't fit in. And that there's an article that he wrote for the Huffington Post, which if you can find it, check it out because there's a great moment in it where uh, there were, and I never saw the episode, but apparently they had some big thing that they were doing outside where they, like every show, you have to raise a bunch of money for a charity or something. And so uh, he manages to convince the Blue Man Group and Teller to make a, an appearance. And they come in and they're sort of in a parade and they take money and they just throw it around. They throw it in the air and, and uh, there's a brass band playing. I think there's all sorts of things happening. And uh, later on, of course, Trump and Clay Aiken, who was also on that show, went after him and said, how could you do this? You threw money in the air. And, you know, and he said, in this article, he said, what I loved about that moment, what was so kind of life-affirming about that moment, is that people like Clay Aiken and Donald Trump will never understand me. They will never understand the art that went into creating 
that little piece of performance. And he said, that's what made me the happiest about being on that show. It's a fantastic article. And it, I, I had always admired their skill as magicians and a showman. I knew I was always a, a huge Penn Jillette fan. I just never really knew why until I read that article. Yeah, that really. Oh, they're, they're very fascinating. If you ever get the chance to kind of, you know, um, come across an article that's about either of them, by all means, investigate, read, because it's just the things that they're up to. They're very, very smart, very, very yeah. thoughtful guys. Um, you know, it, this week I was bantering back and forth on Twitter with um, Dan Riskin, who's the co-host for Daily Planet. Right. Partly because uh, he's a bat expert. He's a mammologist. Toronto's full of mammologists. We've got Brock Fenton. We've got uh, Burton Lamb at the um, Royal Ontario Museum. It's insane the number of people who are into bats. And online, like my Facebook account, is just constantly full of stuff about bats. But what's interesting <laughs> about the, the guys who are into bats is there's this odd trend that's been happening. And uh, he recently sort of tripped across it on his show in Daily Planet was he went to Europe to go and investigate a new species of bat. There was research being done on how bats make their sound. They had this weird kind of funnel-like membrane on their mouth. Right. When they get there, they're, they're investigating it in a bat cave that has been set up with disco lighting. That's funny. You have rounds and rounds of this sort of LED cabling through. <laughs> it's all flashing, kind of like, you know, you've seen disco taxi yeah. cabs like that, that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. And, he, he at first he wasn't sure why, but it turns out that there's this huge trend amongst bat conservancy to actually hold raves and parties in caves where bats are, because wow. that's what's raising a lot of money, and it's very successful. In New Jersey, just two weekends back, they had I, I tripped across this alert that said it's Euro Bat Weekend, and all across Europe, they're actually having weekends where people go out, drink wine, and watch bats go across the sky. Right. But in New Jersey, they actually had DJs come in with disco lighting and set up this entire cave and people there, you know, taking ecstasy and bottled water. Wow. And it's just one of the most remarkable things. Anywho, when I saw that, I thought, well, oh, that's something I wouldn't mind having. Not the ex ecstasy part, but just sort of a disco bat cave. I've always thought that I would love to have a Batman entrance, a cave right. that leads to your mansion well but yeah I, yeah <laughs> yeah now i would have disco lighting added to it uh and the other thing i want to have in my fantasy home one day is this cool thing that i just found out about again through all the bat people on my facebook account uh but this amazing discovery that has been made uh which is let me pull up the image here what you're looking at are two things it's a bat uh, it's a woolly bat yeah. uh, that eats insects. And then on the right is a carnivorous plant called the pitcher plant. Oh, now, that's cool because it doesn't, I mean, it looks like a piece of jewelry or something almost, uh, the plant. Yeah. The plants are called pitcher plants because their shape is kind of like a pitcher of water or a pitcher. Or of a pitcher frame almost maybe. I don't know. Yeah. I'm stretching it a little bit there. Yeah. And the idea is that um, traditionally with pitcher plants, insects sort of fall into it. And at the bottom are all the digestive juices that we associate with carnivorous plants. Right. But we're finding out that this is really crazy. In this case, these, bat, these bats actually sleep inside these plants by day and then fly out like they would. So this plant has become this bat's cave, wow. which is just remarkable. And the relationship here is that when the bat comes home, and he goes head first. So he's hanging upside down from the right. lid of the plant, hanging inside that pocket that you see there. While he's living there and sleeping there, he ends up, of course, going to the bathroom. And so the, the plant is living off of his droppings. 
Oh. That's the trade-off. <laughs> the plants will leave a home and a toilet for the bat. Wow. The bat, you know, leaves and, you know, that's the, the crazy relationship. There, there's people. a horror movie waiting to be made about that. You know, like just a giant man-eating plant home to bats and, yeah, I love well, it. Well, I'm thinking I want, like, one day to have a house that has those beautiful stone gargoyles up on the top. Yeah, but how yeah. great would it be to have a garden of little pitcher plants where bats sleep there by day and then they fly out? At night, I don't know. I don't know how I feel about that, really. <laughs> I'm not sure I find that great. I don't know. Um, well, uh, I wanted to talk about uh, a movie called The Master. And this is a, a film that played at the Toronto International Film Festival. It's been it's open in the United States now. It opens here in a week. Mm -hmm. And it is the new Paul Thomas Anderson movie. You know him as the director of uh, Boogie Nights and Magnolia and There Will Be Blood and Punch Drunk Love. Uh, he's come back with a movie that is, in, in its own way, very loosely, and I mean very loosely based, I think, on L. Ron Hubbard. I mean, I think it's hard to write a story in which one of the main characters is a science fiction writer from the 1950s uh, who's starting a religion and not have it in some ways sort of look back at the beginnings of, of Scientology. Uh, but I think one of the reasons that we're finding that you're not seeing uh, a great deal of mention of the Scientology connections here, I mean, every review that's written, including my own, mentions it, uh, but you're not seeing much more made of it than that, is because the movie uh, uses that as a, a, a starting place and then uh, focuses on the two main characters, played by Philip Seymour Hoffman and Joaquin Phoenix as Lancaster Dowd and Freddie Quell. Lancaster Dowd is the... Uh, L. Ron Hubbard type. He is a very charismatic mystic. Uh, some would say charlatan, maybe. Others would say uh, uh, unlocker of human potential. And Joaquin Phoenix plays a World War II seaman who is quite clearly, uh, this is set in the just after the World War II, he's quite clearly suffering from uh, post-traumatic distress uh, that wasn't called that back then. It was just a nervous condition. Uh, he is an alcoholic who makes his own liquor out of paint thinner and Lysol and whatever else he can find. And when their paths cross, it becomes a story about fathers and sons. It becomes a story about protege and mentor. It becomes a story, almost an uh, Oedipal story. There's so many different ways of looking at this. But the reason that I wanted to talk about it today isn't so much about any of that to tell you about the story because, uh, frankly, this movie isn't really about telling a story. This story is more uh, about uh, the connection that these two people have and the remarkable performances that they both give. So I'm going to throw on the screen a picture of Joaquin Phoenix, just in case you forget what he looks like. There he is. <laughs> this is this is Joaquin. Uh, uh, this is before he meets Lancaster Dodd. He is a photographer uh, in a in a San Francisco. Uh, a, department store. Um, I think this was probably fairly common in those days where you had people who would take photographs and sell them back to you, uh, sort of, you know, portraits and that kind of thing. Uh, he's uh, good at it, except that he's not very good with people, so that leads into trouble, uh, and eventually he ends up uh, connecting with Lancaster Dodd. But I have to tell you that Joaquin Phoenix, who's been gone off our radar for about four years now, he had that uh, terrible documentary in the middle there somewhere, I'm still here, uh, which was a mockumentary 
or was it a real doc about someone who was really falling apart? It's hard to know, and nobody really knows. Directed by Casey Affleck, it's 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 pretty hard going. It's not an easy or particularly entertaining film to watch. And people thought maybe that was it for him. And then he comes back in this and delivers the most ferocious, untamed, feral performance I've seen in a movie uh, in years. This is an astonishing performance. This isn't just, you know, ooh, he's going to win an Academy Award. This is certainly the best performance of the year, if not one of the best performances I've seen in the last 10 years. It is really, truly remarkable. And um, Philip Seymour Hoffman, in any other film, you would watch the performance that he gives and go, well, there's nothing better than this, except he's acting opposite Joaquin Phoenix in this. And I don't know if Joaquin will ever find another project that allows, uh, that plays to the strengths in the way that this movie does. You know, it allows him to be unhinged. It allows him to go to places that maybe he's never gone before. Uh, it reminds me of Marlon Brando, early Marlon Brando. It reminds me of Raging Bull era, Robert De Niro. Wow. And, and we see, uh, you know, if you look at the careers of those two men after, you know, very significant performances, there just isn't that amount of this kind of material out there to uh, continually feed uh, the uh, – the you know the to, to continually come up with interesting movies like this but if you have a chance in the next couple of weeks if you're living in the u.s uh i've just put up this this is uh one of the posters from the movie it's called the master uh check this out paul thomas anderson if you can see it uh projected in 70 mil as i did during the toronto international film festival because it is so beautiful and so big and so detailed on 70 mil not that many theaters are, are equipped to handle it there but it's really worth having a look at and the performances honestly i've saw it well it's just been a few days now it's been three or four days since i've seen it i can't get it out of my head it is fantastic stuff and joaquin phoenix if he never makes another movie he retires every now and again i don't know how old he is 30 he retires every now and again uh, from film, and then he comes back. If he never makes another movie after that, uh, he will, I think, at, from this point on, be considered one of the great film actors. That's amazing. That's quite a recommendation. Yeah. I mean, don't go for the story. No. Because you will the, – the, I mean, it, there is definitely a story, but it's more uh, – it, it's, it's impressionistic, and it, it's not – uh, something that wraps up neatly at the end. And it's not something you, you're going to walk out of there going, man, I enjoyed that because it's not the kind of movie that you really enjoy. It's the kind of movie that you sit back and you're a little uh, overwhelmed by, I think, often while you're watching it. And I'll tell you, it's uh, it's one of the most phenomenal experiences I've had in a movie theater in a very long time. Would you say that there's kind of a, a parallel almost between, uh, I can't remember the name of the actor, from My Left Foot, Dan, uh, Daniel Day-Lewis, yeah, who who won an Academy Award starring in Paul Thomas Anderson's last film, There Will Be Blood. Yeah, I mean, you know, but Joaquin has always been a good actor. He's always, you know, handed in interesting performances. It just, to me, seems that this is the perfect match for artist and character. And, I mean, I'm not sure that that's a, completely a compliment because the person he plays in this movie is so troubled. Uh, but, but, and I'm not suggesting that you know he is troubled in his in his own life but he's brought something here he's brought an understanding to this character that it goes beyond just uh you know uh saying the lines in an interesting way he there's something deep felt deeply felt here that makes this performance different 
And I think obviously having Philip Seymour Hoffman to spark off of, you know, may have pushed that. Having Amy Adams, who uh, hands in a smallish but crucial role as uh, Lancaster Dodd's wife, uh, and she's kind of the the, uh, the the real kind of engine that keeps the the nuts and bolts of this new movement moving along. She's a bit of a fascist in a lot of ways, uh, but it's a really unusual performance from her because again, we're so often, you know, seeing her in lighter things that to see her in, in something like this is interesting and welcome. Yeah. We're kind of at a, a fortunate time uh, in movie history where despite it being such a commercial industry, there seems to still be pockets of opportunity where you have directors, you have actors who can get together for, you know, movies that still have a lot of money, that still have studio support, but can be experimental and kind of find uh, those powerful artistic sort of stories and expressions to tell. Yeah, no, I think, and the, and the master is definitely one of them. I mean, I'm not sure how this movie got made. It must have cost a fortune. It's shot on 70 millimeter. Right. It's got big stars in it. <laughs> you know, uh, you know the, the last movie that Paul Thomas Anderson made, all those movies have been successful. So I mean, that's that, I mean that's how it gets made. But you know, it's it's a difficult, unconventional movie about difficult, unconventional people. And, you know, th those aren't words that really start setting off bells all over Hollywood. People don't jump up for joy when you go, you know what, I've got my new script, and it's about assholes. And yeah. <laughs> they're, they're not likable, and, and, you know. And so and that's not something that, that people in Hollywood are generally drawn towards. But I'll tell you, um, you know, luckily in this case, this movie got made. Uh, the, the, and I, I mention it every week, Ken Russell's film, The Devils, I asked Joe Dante, uh, would this movie ever get made, uh, you know, any today? And he said, only if some lunatic billionaire paid for it. And as I was watching The Master, I was kind of wondering to myself, I wonder who the lunatic billionaire was that uh, put up the money for this. But as it turns out, it's, you know, it's a, it's a big, uh, it's a big movie. So, Yeah, which is amazing because it's, it's not just, you know, taking a, an unconventional story and putting it on the screen. But in this case, there are very strong parallels with Scientology. Yeah. Scientology has extremely strong ties to Hollywood. Mm -hmm. I mean, you, it's it's impossible to work there without working with someone who is of that religion. Yeah. You know, you're poking that beast. I Yeah, I'm with you. I don't know how it was made, but I'm glad that it turned out to be really great. It, it's really good. It's really good. I, I uh, go for the performances and I you it'll snap your head back, I'll tell you. It's good stuff. Well, I'm going to ask you now to... Um, I'm going to ask for your help and also okay. anyone who's watching in helping me solve a mystery that goes back many decades. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's all about David Cronenberg. So oh. uh, hopefully a very happy subject for everybody. Okay. Uh, and what I want to do is I want to tell you a story that I haven't told anybody and I've never seen it repeated anywhere. Well. It has to do with how I discovered uh, David Cronenberg when I was a little boy. Right. When I first heard about David Cronenberg, my exposure to him was two ways. One was that it was just the clip that they kept playing over and over and over again from scanners on television. And to my eyes, having not seen the movie, uh, I was seeing Louie from seeing things just have his head explode. <laughs> over and over again. So as a little kid, I'm like... That's a little that, traumatic, yeah. It is kind of weird, yeah. I'm watching Louie from seeing things just stand there at a desk like a news anchor and have his head explode. And Boom. that yeah. seemed to be the narrative on television again and again about this is what his movies are like. Right. And then also hearing it from older teenagers who would talk about how his movies are about women with vaginas in their armpits and, ah, and that kind of stuff. 
So as a little kid who grew up watching the Twilight Zone and, and Star Wars, I had no interest in whatever David Cronenberg movies were supposed to be about. Right. It just wasn't of interest. Until uh, there was one summer I was sick and I ended up staying at home for about two weeks all alone in the house, which is a fantastic thing if you were a little kid because now it's like, you know, your place. Right. You don't have to, to worry about uh, talking to anybody about what's on TV. You can watch whatever you want. You know, right. You're stuck on the couch, got my little bowl of Cheerios, <laughs> and I am you know walked up to the TV and I flipped through the channels and there was a program on about movies. And I thought, oh, good. This is great. I love movies. Went back on the couch, sat down, and then they explained it was going to be about David Cronenberg. And I went, oh, that's too bad. <laughs> <laughs> but, I hate David Cronenberg. Exactly. Like I don't want to see you know movies about girls with vaginas yeah. and their armpits. This is stupid. But to my surprise, it was a very intelligent video essay that was treating the the subject matter for what it really was. They were talking about how David Cronenberg's movies are very unique. They're very particular because right. he had a medical background. He began studying right. medicine before he got into filmmaking. That his movies were about things like how the body rebels against itself, how there mm -hmm. are um, illnesses where people's hands kind of have a, a mind of their own and about the power of transformation of the flesh when you have sickness and disease, how right. something looks normal can suddenly be turned radical. And so for my little brain, I was like, huh, that's kind of interesting. Do go on. You know, I now love I'm, David Cronenberg now. Yeah, now. <laughs> so they led into uh, an interesting psychological experiment that was done. And here's the experiment. They took one of his films, and I'm trying to remember, it was the one that often goes by about six different names. The uh, Blood, Nymphet, uh, I can't remember. It's the not, Brood? Not The Brood. The other one in which you actually had parasites, blood parasites that were... Oh, yeah. Um, it was uh, Slithers. Slithers, that's it. Yeah. So they took Slithers, and they went to a um, theater here in Toronto, and they invited a pile of students from the University of Toronto to come and watch the movie. And the researchers stood outside the theater with little clipboards in their hands. It's called Shivers or shivers. They Came From Within. That's it. Okay, Shivers. And I know like in across Europe it was named like six other different titles. Yeah, I'm just going to throw uh, the, the poster up on the screen oh, cool. here so people can have a look. That's, this is the uh, the terror beyond the power of priest or science to exercise. Yeah, a very frightening movie yeah. uh, that was beyond what typical horror was because it involved right. uh, parasites invading your bodies and transferring from one person to the other. There was a sexual component to it, kind of like you know transmission of sexual diseases. Mm -hmm. So because of that nature, these researchers wanted to see how teenagers responded to it. And they showed the movie to a pack of students from the University of Toronto uh, stood outside with their little clipboards and waited for the movie to end. Right. The movie ended. The students came filing out one by one. They stopped them and said, you know, can you, what was your reaction? What did you think? Did you associate this? And that, that, that. Then, because there's a cultural difference in this country between English Canadians and French Canadians, they took the same movie and they packed it up and took it to Montreal. Right. They repeated the same experiment. They had a theater. They had a bunch of students from a local university, uh, Quebec, I'm not sure, filed them into the theater, played the movie, stood out there with their little, you know, clipboards yeah. and waited for the movie to end. And they're sitting there chatting with each other. And they kind of notice that the time has really passed. And so they, they look at their watches and they realize the movie has technically ended, but nobody has come out of the theater. Huh. And so they opened up the doors and they walked into the theater 
and everyone had fainted. What? Yes. <laughs> the entire theater had fainted. Now, from my memory of watching this documentary, they actually had cameras going to the theater, and all I could see was rows and rows of seats and people like this. Really? And really, yes, really. <laughs> so... I'm, I'm pulling up some pictures here so we can see what's so damn sure. I haven't seen this movie in a long time. Yeah. Let's see if I can uh, find something uh, that will make our viewers faint. And so part of it was that they had found this an interesting result that had to do with the difference of the two cultures. That right. what is considered taboo in English Canada is very different from what is considered taboo or shocking in French Canada. Right. Uh, and I don't know if it's because there's a prominent Catholic upbringing there or but just that what was on considered in that movie was considered to be too much for the, the French Canadian students to kind of grasp or understand. It was very shocking for them that they had right. to kind of simply because they didn't know them. And I mean, what's key here is that I don't think either group knew what movie they were going to see. There is always a big difference with exploitation cinema. If you know that you're going to go in and there's going to be lots of horror and, you know, things like that. Uh, it's a bit of a, a, a real shock if you haven't been warned in advance. Right. Yeah, I mean, I, I couldn't find any uh, pictures that were immediately shocking, but this is pretty cool. This is a lobby card. Uh, same uh, uh, tagline, beyond the power of priests or science to exercise. But I just love the, the bathtub. Something clearly is coming out of the drain and going somewhere that you don't want it to go. No. That's terrible. And, uh, and then the picture. So I, I will keep looking to see if I can find something to shock and outrage people. But so far, the internet is letting me down. <laughs> but I, I don't find, I mean, I, I've seen this movie and it's been, you know, it's been a very long time since I've seen it. And maybe, you know, now, because we've seen so many uh, other things that are, you know, disturbing and shocking and, you know, the, anything that you've sat through that resembles uh, you know, anything like from the Saw movies or anything like that, you'll find you know, that you get a little bit desensitized to it. So you may watch this now and go, oh, you know, it's creepy, but it's not terrifying me. But I, I would like to know exactly what it was that made people pass out. I mean, you have to keep in mind that this was only, uh, which I guess explains the tagline about the priest and exorcism. It was only a year after The Exorcist came out. And, you know, people were going crazy there. I mean, they were, uh, through, you know, we discussed vomit bags earlier. People were throwing up in theaters. They were, uh, uh, one man in San Francisco apparently attacked the screen to get the devil out of the screen, you know, and that sort of thing. So, you know, perhaps audiences were just a little bit more interactive in a different way than, than they are now. Well, I have to admit, you know, now that, I mean, that did it for me, okay? From that point on, I was like, Cronenberg is, is just incredible. I have to go and find all these guys' films and, and track them down, which is terribly difficult because at that time, I think you're right, uh, for audiences at that time, it was hard to be exposed to exploitation cinema unless yeah. you went and saw it at a theater. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, you, you couldn't just go rent it on VHS. You couldn't get it on DVD. It was very hard to kind of track down and find. Uh, and so for me, it was I had to wait a long time until I was a teenager before I could even start to access Cronenberg's yeah. films and sort of really wrapped my head around it. But that was it. That to me, I felt this guy has to be one of the most fascinating men out there. Uh, just the fact that he's willing to explore things that have that kind of an impact, but also willing to think the unthinkable. Yeah. Um, okay. I've just found something. I found a picture. <laughs> and I don't know. <laughs> it's just slightly nightmarish, but let me throw it up here because uh, I, 
when I say throw it up, I might be on to something. <laughs> uh, let's have a look here at what's happening in this photograph. Something not very pleasant is either coming out of or going into this guy's mouth. Uh, and this may have uh, a little bit something to do with uh, why people were passing out. Because, you know, Cronenberg uh, has been known to really do studies of body horror. And it's all about, for him, you know, the mutating body. Even his most successful films, The Fly, I mean, there's a, that this the fly is emblematic of, of the kind of horror that that he was uh, that that he has specialized in. Now, his son Brandon Cronenberg is making movies uh, like Antiviral, which is also kind of exploring that same kind of topic. But uh, Shivers, uh, I'm going to have to revisit. I haven't seen it for a very long time. I'm going to have to revisit and make sure that there's nothing sharp around, just in case I pass out and I fall down. Well, and I, I want to put a caveat, which is that there's you know when I saw that documentary. I was a, a little boy, right? Uh, and in my mind at that time, I you know tended to believe everything that they said in terms right. of that documentary. I'm not 100% sure now as an adult that an entire theater full of people actually fainted. It, you know what? It seems unlikely to me. Yeah. I wouldn't throw that out there. It seems unlikely, but you never know. No. And, and I mean, what I saw in terms of the footage, and I remember it now, it looked more like they were recreating what the study sort of may have That's claimed. Right, yeah. may have been an exaggeration. But definitely it was interesting to me that a movie could have that kind of an impact and i've since you know read everything i can get my hands on about david cronenberg i have right. a lot of his interviews i've never meant never come across this study again i don't I, know where it exists i've never heard of it uh and i've i've you know spent a bit of time reading about cronenberg and say and say i've never ever heard of this so maybe somebody out there maybe someone out there was in the theater that Maybe somebody awesome. out yeah. there will be in touch. And they'll be like, no, it wasn't the movie. It was bad popcorn. I ate too much licorice. Me and the, the entire audience, and we fell asleep. Well, you know, in the past couple of years, a lot of ancient, you know, footage from, from Canadian television starting to make its way to YouTube, which right. is fantastic. You've got the opening to Magic Shadows now on there. So uh, through a picture world and, you know, all sorts of stuff that's emerging. So if anyone comes across this documentary, documentary, by all means, please send a link to heyallyouzombies.com. I would love to see it again because it's something I've been carrying with me for a very long time and sort of trying to wrap my head around. I always thought, oh, no, no, it's going to be mentioned in some book or somebody's going to bring it up again because it's just a great story. But, uh, no, I've never heard of it since. And what year do you figure this was? Ah, da, da, da. This would have been uh, early 1980s. Yeah, because there, there's there's a documentary here. I'm just on YouTube right now. Uh, it looks like 1986 called Long Live the New Flesh, which I don't think I've seen. I don't think I've seen this, but that seems a bit too late, right? Yeah, I think that's a little too late. Mm. All right. We will keep looking. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go zombies there's your mission this week <laughs> right yeah um i wanted to uh talk about uh, movies that make an impression or i guess specifically movie lines that make an impression there's been a a new poll done i mean these things are done all the time right once a year once every you know couple of months it seems like someone's done a new poll this one is uh sky's film streaming service now tv has uh has asked you know hundreds, thousands of people, doesn't say, uh, how what their favorite movie lines are. And the 10 most famous memorable catchphrases 
um, starting at the bottom with 4.15%. No, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die. Right. From Goldfinger. Uh, here's Johnny from The Shining. Uh, there's no place like home, The Wizard of Oz. Of all the gin joints and all the towns, all that goes on. Nobody puts baby in a corner. Uh, comes in at one, two, three, four, five. I thought that would have been a little higher, but uh, and then uh, life is like a box of chocolates. Uh, Houston, we have a problem. Uh, and then there's three, and I'm not going to tell you what order they are. What do you think is number one? Number one, um, I would think it has to be because it's hard because some of the big ones are ones that. Uh, have been misquoted. So right. I'm thinking of like Gone with the Wind. You know, frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. Right. Well, that was number one for a long time. Yeah. It is no longer number one here. So it, like Citizen Kane, has been knocked off the, the best. Citizen Kane doesn't appear in the top ten anywhere. And there's a couple there that, that are surprisingly not there. Um, uh, frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn is number two. Uh, I thought May the Force Be With You would be number one. Mm-hmm. How about Sorry. Luke, I am your father? You know? Nope. Number four uh, is May the Force Be With You. I'll be back. The simplest of all of them wow. uh, comes in at number one from the Terminator. 16% of uh, the people polled uh, chose that line. And uh, I mean, I get it. It's easy to say you can use it in a lot of different situations. But, you know, go ahead, punk, make my day. Where's that line from Dirty Harry? You know, you got to play it again, Sam. Are, yeah, there's a, there's a number of lines there that that uh, uh, don't appear, and I think it must be sort of an age thing, you know? The, who knows how old a lot of these people were. But it got me thinking about uh, some other lines that, that could easily have been there. So, um, and you know, if you're listening to this at work, turn it down for a second. Uh, but uh, Samuel L. Jackson uh, has had a number of memorable lines, but um, enough is enough. I've had it with these motherfucking planes or snakes of these motherfucking <laughs> planes. That one is a is a classic line, I think, from a movie that was in a, like a sensation online. Remember that? Remember oh, yeah. the, the sort of ramp up to this? It went crazy. All anyone could talk about online. Everybody on Dig was like, "This is going to be the greatest movie of all time." It's good. This is going to be the craziest movie ever. And uh, and then nothing. I mean, it came out to a resounding thud. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I was a little surprised uh, by that when it came out to, to uh, such disinterest. But uh, I think, and this is what I wrote at the time, like Edith Piaf's La Vie en Rose, the first verse of Howl by Allen Ginsberg, Angelina Jolie's Lips, Dylan's Subterranean Homesick Blues, or Delicate Chocolate Flecks and Mint Ice Cream, the sound of Samuel L. Jackson saying Motherfucker is sublime. No one says it quite like him. It is as artful as Pavarotti's High C and a lot less showy than Cirque du Soleil. It is his pieta, and in Snakes in the Plane, he uses it sparingly but very effectively. That was my take on that line. So I would have liked to have seen that line up there. Thank you. Thank you very much. I would have liked to have seen that line up there. Um, there are a number of lines that I've always loved, but you know, weren't they're, they're not particularly quotable, or they, you know, they, they, you don't hear them very often. And I think one of the things that makes a great movie line. We discussed this a while ago. How there's an algorithm now to try and figure out which lines people are going to uh, really be drawn to. But uh, there's a line in the movie Crazy Heart. Do you remember this one? Uh, Chuck yeah. Bridges and Academy Award a couple of years ago, or three years ago now. And uh, so he and uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal are in a hotel room together. 
finally. And he's a musician, an itinerant musician. He's a drunk. He's been on the road forever. And uh, she's a journalist who wants to interview him. And then romance happens. And uh, uh, she says, what do you want to talk about? And he goes, I want to talk about how bad you make this room look. I never knew what a dump it was until you came in here. And it's just the way he says it and, and then the, 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 the place in which it happens in the movie right. uh, is just uh, perfect. There is such a... A great, uh, for me anyway, in that one line, sums up so much of the character of Bad Blake that he plays. He was kind of a rascally charmer, uh, someone who, you know, uh, knew how to, he was at one point a great songwriter, so he had a way with words. Uh, he knows how to use those words to get what he wants, and he's trying to seduce this young woman, and that's what he says. And I thought it was a, a, a fantastic line, and I've always loved that line. Well, it's one you never quote anywhere, but it's a, yeah. it's a good line. Well, I think um, you're, you're absolutely right, and no disrespect to James Brooks, but I would yeah. say that it's even better than you make me want to be a better man. Yeah, yeah. You it's know, the, the same kind of vein, but, I mean, you're right in that – You've got as easy as it gets. That's the movie, right? Yeah. Um, it takes place in a big. As good as it gets. As good as it gets. Yeah. As it takes place in a big, swanky, glamorous restaurant. They're yeah. all well dressed. It's not quite the same as Jeff Bridges. Yeah, in, <laughs> in, in, in a, a crappy movie. little hotel room. Oh. Yeah. But uh, but it's good stuff. And then uh, Chris Christopherson. I interviewed him years ago on stage. Uh, well, we just talked about his career. I was giving him a, like a lifetime achievement award. And then we talked for a very long time on stage. And he reminded me of a line uh, from uh, Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. And Billy the Kid, played by Chris Christopherson, uh, is about to shoot uh, uh, a deputy, a, a, a police officer, with a shotgun that's been loaded with dimes, old silver dimes. And so they didn't have any buckshot, I guess. And he loads the thing, and he's about to shoot it, and he says to the guy, keep the change, Bob. <laughs> Boom! <laughs> Which, again, is one of those lines, it's simple enough, you know, but I guess yeah. the, the situation is so specific, you're not going to get a chance to use that very often, but it is a good line. Uh, you know, a, a great closing line from the movie Easy Rider, Captain America, Peter Fonda says to uh, Billy, played by Dennis Hopper, we blew it. As I mean, if you've seen Easy Rider uh, and you sort of have the the idea of what that movie is about and what it stands for and what it was supposed to be all about, that last line is a classic. Um, I'm just having a look through. Uh, there, I loved a movie from a, a, a few years ago now, I think 2010, 2009, called The Runaways. And it was it starred Kristen Stewart and Dakota Fanning as two mm -hmm. members of the all-girl band The Runaways. And Michael Shannon, who is such a fantastic actor, uh, uh, played Kim Fowley, who's a real-life record producer. He's still alive, still kicks around, but he was a character, Sunset Boulevard character, uh, who produced a lot of uh, records. He wrote the song Alley Oop, I think, in the 50s and had a big hit with that. But uh, um, I love, uh, in the movie, it's glam rock era, so he's painted his face in sort of a David Bowie-esque kind of way. And he's a, a huge statuesque man. And he comes up to uh, Joan Jett, played by Christian Stewart, and he goes, I'm Kim Fowley, record producer. You've heard of me. <laughs> it's a great way to introduce yourself. <laughs> I don't know. These, these are just uh, stories that I've, uh, or lines that sort of I, I, I picked up over the years that I like. Yeah, I like the, the one from... Um... Uh, is it good, the bad, and the ugly? I don't know. I'm not sure. Uh, it's, you know, if you have to shoot, shoot, don't talk. That's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which I think is a great lesson. I mean, not only was that 
wonderful because it was actually a movie commenting on other movies. Right. Because up until that time, everybody had a huge long soliloquy or speech right. that they gave before they would kill the blow. And for him to just simply say, look, you know, that's, in real life, that doesn't work. If you, <laughs> if you have to do the dirty deed, just do it. Yeah. Well, it reminds me, there, there's a lot of, I've made up a list here of lines that begin with, if I'm, or if I don't come back, you know, there's, there's a thousand of those, right? And what you just said reminded me of one of them. Uh, in the movie, Jesus Christ, a vampire hunter. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't <laughs> seen that one. 2001, uh, uh, Jesus Christ uh, says, if I'm not back in five minutes, call the Pope. Which I think is a pretty great line. <laughs> well, yeah, that's 2001. Okay, so that's a reference to Big Trouble in Little China. Yeah, oh yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. If you don't hear from us, you know, call the president, which yeah. is full of fantastic lines. Jack Burns, all that, the reflexes. Yeah, no, that movie is a, that's that's got some good stuff in it. Yeah. yeah, I'm just having to look to see if there's any. Oh, well, uh, you people sit tight, hold the fort, and keep down the home fire and keep the home fires burning. And if we're not back by dawn. Call the president, Jack Burton, big trouble in Little China. Yeah. Jack Burton, man. I yeah. love that movie. Yeah. It's funny how it didn't get a lot of love when it first came out, but now it's like you can kind of judge a person if you're at a party. If they That's love right. Big Trouble in Little China, I can hang out with you all night. Yeah, no, absolutely. Now, Big Trouble in Little China is one of those movies. I think that, um, you know, again, I remember when it came out. I saw it in the theater, I guess, when it came out, but it certainly has a place in my uh, DVD collection. It's a, it's a favorite. Well, when you talk about great movies of all time, I, for me, there are – Movies that qualify as being great, mm -hmm. let's say Akira Kurosawa's Yojimbo, yep. Yep. and then there are movies that are more of a favorite. I've seen Highlander like you know countless oh, times. Yeah. I can't, yeah. yeah, but I would never say that they're both. Whereas you could convince me that Big Trouble in Little China is both great and a favorite film. I just there's something about it that transcends beyond its popcorn goofiness. It's just it's too everything comes together just too perfectly. Ah, every well, time see, I, see I it, think. I think that a movie like Jaws is that movie as well. Right. You know, Jaws is a movie that when it first came out was a popcorn movie. I, re I went to see it in 1975. You're going to need a bigger boat, you know, all that, like great lines, but it was a popcorn movie. And I most recently went to see it about a month ago. Uh, it was playing here in Toronto on the big screen. I hadn't seen it on the big screen in a while. And man, does it ever hold up. You know, this is a movie that will keep you on the edge of your seat no matter how many times you've seen it. It's still exciting. And I think I said this on the podcast one other time. Uh, after I saw it, whenever it was, a month or so ago, uh, a guy walked out of there and he, and he said, he'd been sitting a few rows in front of me, and he goes, I thought the fish might win this time. I thought the shark might get it this time, but uh, but still, that's a movie that that is still holds up really well. Meant to be a popcorn movie, meant to be you know uh, just a, a little entertainment, but there's so much more going on in it that it's held up for uh, you know thirty four you know whatever it is thirty four thirty five years. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, we should end the show with a new um, movie, Pistols at Dawn. Yes. Yes. You ready for this? I'm All right, ready. So because I talked about at the beginning of the episode about dream houses, yes. uh, I thought it'd be really cool to kind of pick out some dream houses from the movies. And there's plenty of them out there. It's, it's hard to kind of pick one. Mm. Where to live. Uh, I'm just, uh, I'm doing, I'm doing a cheat. I'm doing a cheat here. Um, I don't know. Like a quick little search. A quick little and search. Just as a reminder, I mean, <laughs> oh, what's that? Sorry, you cut out for a sec. Now, if you have any suggestions, 
Um, oh, okay. I guess we're having some technical difficulty. Yeah. Uh, if anyone has any suggestions as to what kind of topics we can tackle for Movie Pistols of Dawn, or you have a suggestion for what you would consider to be a dream house, by all means, you visit our website, hailyzombies.com, put it in the comments, or send us a, a reply on Twitter or Facebook, and we'll, we'll feature it in a future episode. The, um, the one I was thinking about um, is from Diamonds Are Forever. Mm -hmm. Bond film. And it's, I feel bad for choosing it because it's almost like a cop-out. That's that circular building, beautiful house. You right. get to the top, it's all concrete, beautiful view of the, the, the landscape around. And then as they're standing there talking, the floor starts moving back. Oh, yeah, and yeah. That built-in pool, of course, with the sharks below. Yeah. For yeah. me, um, I, I think that has captured my imagination a lot because mm -hmm. I, I love the idea. And this is something the James Bond movies always did great because in the original – um, Thunderball, Dr. No, you had that same idea where there would be a panel that would open up and you would yeah. see sharks and other sort of aquatic creatures, that ability to kind of live with the sea sort of invading your home. That right. to me really sort of captures my imagination. Of course, I don't know if I would want to have lasers on the sharks like they had see, in Austin Powers. You know, you might want to you might want to rethink that a little bit. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, for me, I I I think uh, because I'm never actually going to live in this dream house. I no. would like to. I would like to uh, go inside. I think if I could choose a house from the movies that I'd like to sort of check out and have a look. This maybe is a bit of a cheat. It's not exactly my dream house, but I'd love to go to the Amityville Horror House and just see what it feels like, see what the vibe is in there. Because, you know, there have been so many stories over the years about this house, you know, the walls bleeding, all, you know, whatever, all the horror stuff. And then you have other people go, you know, nothing. I've lived here for, you know, people have lived in and out of this house for years, but nothing happening. I would like to go just see what the vibe is, see if you do get this sense of foreboding or if it is something that is completely just, you know, playing out in your head because the place has such a, a long and weird and troubled history. Okay. But would you be willing to go and do this during the day or do it at night? Oh, I'd go at night. Hell yeah. yeah. I'd go at night. I say that now because it's daylight outside and it's never going to happen. But yeah, no, I would go. I mean, the people live there now. I mean, there's a video that I saw online recently of someone standing in front of the house, a very distinctive looking house, and taking photos and taking a, a video of it. And whoever it was, the owner, came outside and said, you know, listen, we don't mind one or two pictures, but come on, we live here. You know, and it's, it's a daily thing that people are up taking pictures and snapping and I guess trying to see if, you know, they can see anything weird happening in the house. I don't know. But, um, yeah, that for me would be uh, like a movie tourism spot, a stop. I would like to go have a look at the Amityville Horror House. I think it would be cool just to sort of, you know, do that proverbially spend the night there all by yourself with a little yeah. sleeping bag up in the attic. And a, yeah, that's right. I don't know that that's going to happen. I mean, I, you know, listen, I, I appreciate the sentiment. I'd like to go have a look because, you know, I mean, in some places I've been places where I felt creeped out. Like, I, you know, you just walk in and go, oh, something's not quite right here. Whereas, you know, on the other hand, I've been places that have immediately made me feel comfortable. I just wonder what would happen if I'd go in there. Maybe nothing. You walk through the front door and it's just another big old sort of New Orleans, you know, New England style home. Yeah, and you probably would find all sorts of interesting details that have nothing to do with horror. You know, maybe a um, clown paper wallpaper in one room or something. Yeah, you know, yeah, no, totally. Yeah. <laughs> Either way, you're going to come out with a story. That's right. All right. So that brings us to the end of this episode. That's it. I'm going to play the theme music. Oh, here we go. I'll throw, uh, I'll get the picture up there. And this is 
Uh, just as a reminder, the band that you're listening to is Johnny O and the Jerks. You can find a link to their music and purchase it on iTunes on our website at hailyouzombies.com. All right. There we go. We've got the picture. 